Oops. Uh, another beautiful clap, James. Um, welcome back to Total Dissonance this week. Uh, we've got on a lovely guest called Gwydion to come and talk about the music of Erin Korngold. Um, why are we talking about Korngold today, Gwydion? He's been my favourite composer since I was 14 and I just love his music. You love the music, yeah. Can we, yeah. Can we get a little bit of a background on, on, on you, a bit more about what you do? Because you are actually studying at college in the same year as us, I believe. No, no, no. I'm actually my third year as an undergrad. You're in your third year, uh, so you're younger but smarter. Yes. Okay. It's so <laughs> even worse for us. <laughs> yeah, I'm studying composition at college and really enjoying it and conducting as a second study. And, and I will say that I've heard um, your pieces being performed once or twice, which is already a good sign at RCM. And yes. they were fantastic. It doesn't happen <laughs> yeah. often, you know. Thank you. Um, so that's really wonderful. Um, but yeah, we, we're going to delve into the world of Eric Korngold, which is going to be an interesting episode because people are aware of him, but people don't always know about his life, about mm. his works, you know, and his inspirations. But could you tell us a little bit about why at 14 you decided to, to take him on as your sort of project, in a sense? Mm. I can actually remember when I first heard the name of Korngold. I was about 12 and it was summer of 2015 and Nicola Benedetti had just given a performance of the Violin Concerto at the BBC Proms. We'd recorded that concert on our TV at home. But back then I wasn't that interested in exploring the music of composers whose names I didn't already know. So I watched the opening seconds of the Violin Concerto and I thought, no, I'll save this for another day. And then for, for some reason I can't really explain, two years later when I was about 14... I thought, the name came back to me, and I thought, well, I might do some research on this guy. And I looked him up and found he'd been such an extraordinary composer. He was, um, he'd been an amazing child prodigy who'd had a ballet stage at the Vienna Court Opera when he was, what, 13, had written for what some of the most eminent conductors and musicians of his time. We've got Arthur Schnabel, Karl Flesch, um, Arthur Nikisch, Felix von Weingartner, and so on and so forth. And he was basically made aware to composers like Gustav Mahler and Richard Strauss when he was still in his teens, even before then. Mm. There's a famous story that when Korngold, aged nine, played a piece he'd written to Gustav Mahler, who was in the room, Mahler proclaimed him a genius, which is he played. He played his piece, it was called Gold, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Cantata, it was. Um, and, th- yeah. yeah. But it wasn't just Mahler, it was, it was Puccini as well, also thought yes. that he was like a prodigy. So, I mean, that is... About as good as it gets, really, for Child Prodigy to have the likes <laughs> of Strauss, yeah. Marlowe, Puccini. He was born sort of late, very late 1800s. Yeah, um, 1897. So grew up, obviously, in that sort of fantasy of time, but also mm-hmm. with um, Schoenberg and, and Weber and Berg, etc., that second Viennese school yes. around him. Um, and it was in Vienna that he grew up, right? Yes, his family moved to Vienna when he was, I think, about two years old. Okay, and, um, yeah. But what um, I was going to ask was, uh, did he take much informa- uh, Sorry, much inspiration in his music from that second Viennese school of composers? Or, or what, where, where did he draw it from around him at that time? I'm quite sure. His musical language, I would say, derives more from, if it does deserve at all from the second Viennese school, it's from their earlier pieces when they were still kind of pushing tonality, still writing tonally in a way. But then very kind of richly chromatic and what I find amazing about Korngold's early music is he not only managed to absorb this kind of incredibly rich harmonic language musical language from composers like I don't know Richard Strauss, Mahler, early Schoenberg and so forth he managed to kind of fuse it with his own personal identity as a composer and 
if you listen to from the opening of his Opus One, Piano Trio, which he wrote when he was twelve, he it's you can sense kind of where it comes from, but at the same time you're aware that this is already Korngold and it could be nobody else. And I'll also mention uh, the influence of Alexander von Zemlinsky, another composer working in Fantasiakle Vienna uh, at the time, yeah. who was actually Korngold's teacher. I know, yeah, he wrote one of the worst clarinet trios of all time <laughs> in, the, in the early stages. Actually, maybe it wasn't that bad. Really? But, is, there yeah. a, is there a, like a Guinness World Record for that? Or like a classical music no, there, Hall of Famer for the worst There's pieces? not, and if I give it that label, it's definitely not true at all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Um, like anything else in this podcast, anything that we say, it's actually not true at all. <laughs> we put Gridian, so it's um, all true now. So was, it, was, was his father, was it Lucius? Um, Julius Korngold. Like Julius Korngold. Um, yeah, he was a very eminent music critic. Music critic. The, he was, I think, the successor to Edward Hanslick, who was a very much a champion of Brahms and a kind of anti-Wagner and Liszt and so on and so forth. What's interesting is that Julius was not only enthusiastic about the music of Liszt and Wagner, he was also very enthusiastic about the music of Mahler as mm. well. And if I'm correct in remembering, he and his son, at least they went to the rehearsals and possibly the premiere in Munich of Mahler's Eighth Symphony. Yeah. And it was um, must have been an extraordinary occasion. But then, yeah, Julius had an interesting effect on the his son's outputs, for, for better or for worse in a way, because if you listen... Because there's a story, there's a story of Korngold attending an early performance of... Stravinsky's Ballet Petrushka mm. and being so excited by the um the piece and he's just stood up and applauded at the end only to be almost physically restrained in his seat by one of his family I'm not sure if that was his father but it, it was his father and because his father was very damning of the second Viennese school yes um and even so like the later Strauss stuff he mm. absolutely slated him which was pretty problematic for Kongold because when he started working in Vienna, Strauss was one of his superiors. Yes. So it became quite an awkward relationship to be friends with somebody and yeah. to be an employer of somebody who your father was absolutely slating on a weekly basis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but um, I think that was part of it. I think part of why his he was writing at the same time as Second Union School and yet didn't seem to take any inspiration from it in many ways was because his father basically prevented him. From oh, doing yeah, so. they probably didn't want him to yeah, listen um, too much to that, that stuff. Exactly. They would have it's quite it. a sort of strange, rebellious teenage phase. Like to rebel is to... Exactly, take up cigarettes and drinking. This yeah, guy is like... This guy occasionally listened to Schoenberg. Logging on to you know, fight the second view. When, uh, when his dad had gone to bed. Following around Faber. Yeah, exactly. That's interesting. I did have a question, actually, about... Because when I was doing a little bit of reading up about Korngold, and I mean very minimal preparation, yeah. <laughs> um, I saw that people described him as having two different kind of personalities, one when he was back home in Europe and one when he moved to America. So could you explain a little bit, maybe, about how his music style changed, about how his life changed when he did go to New York, was it? Um, it may have been. He definitely went to America in, I think it was 1934 originally, to help provide or prepare um, arranged the music to Max Steiner's film of Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. And what Korngold did with that score essentially was to take a number of pieces of the incidental music that Mendelssohn had written for the play mm. and arrange them for the film. Oh, interesting. And his first original film score came, I think, the following year with Captain Blood. And which... Because Korngold himself was one of those figures who really established the sound, what we think of as the golden age of Hollywood, which is sound which 
they brought that kind of late 19th century, early 20th century like romantic style with a mm. kind of very rich harmonic language, very rich orchestral style. And also kind of... Cornwall described his film scores as operas without singing. And so you can detect in some of the films that he wrote, there are lots of themes, not only... Um, Mm. in symbolising characters, but maybe symbolising concepts or places and so on and so forth. But, yeah, Korngold's style, if you look at the music he wrote before moving to America, it's kind of like a... It's a. It's almost... Because with his fourth opera, Das Wunder der Heliana, he's almost taken the chromaticism of his musical language as far as it will go. But there are Before becoming, what, atonal? In, not in, not in quite... Didn't really become atonal as a composer. He never kind of lost touch with tonality. Yeah. If you listen to some of the pieces he wrote before going to America, which I believe include things like the Second String Quartet, it's quite I don't know. I don't know. It's uh, it's kind of on this cusp where Korngold may have begun to seem, musically speaking, a little old-fashioned. But then when he came back from America and went to Europe in the late forties, he was definitely considered passe by the point and the musical style is quite is kind of touched by his experiences in america not only by necessarily how the music sounds but also the fact that he used themes from his film scores in pieces like i don't know the third string quartet the violin concerto the symphony in f sharp the cello concerto interestingly was originally written as a kind of piece in itself for a films for a film score just with really just cello in front and orchestra that's a strange yeah and for a film of. called Devotion, and then Kongol expanded later into a single movement piece. Yeah. Which, yeah, but it's... Um, oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. I feel but like awesome. his, his film music is like, if you keep adding sugar to romantic orchestral <laughs> Yeah, music. and it just becomes this and kind it's, of wash. it's like maybe yeah. only like a spoonful of sugar away from Frozen. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's where it sort of feels like it's, it's gone. Just like sickly. No, no, well, not sickly, but yeah. But almost, but I think that's why that when, when he then came back to Europe and started writing and the critics started hating him because they just sort of thought that he'd been like just defiled by Hollywood. Yeah. Like yes. they, they just didn't take anything he did seriously or mm. thought that it was all, I mean, I remember his, his yeah, violin concerto was yeah. got like damning reviews when High Fitz premiered it, didn't yeah. it? There was um, one review from, I think Irving Colding or mm. the critic of New York Sun, which is probably the only thing he ever did that claims immortality for him. The quip, more corn than gold. More corn than gold. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's the, the title yeah. of this of this podcast episode. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's brilliant. Actually, James, yeah. get on the poster. Yeah, interestingly enough, in fact, about the violin concerto last year, um, during the t- summer of twenty twenty two, I was in the National Youth Orchestra of Wales, and we did the violin concerto uh, with Jennifer Pike as soloist, and wow. uh, I ended. Usually, I end playing cello in orchestras, but this time I got off the job of doing the Celesta in the Congo Violin Concerto, and it was that's cool. really fun. Yeah, yeah, it's a really cool part. How did yeah. you get offered that? Um, just a few weeks well, from before. cello as well, yeah. No, it's, um, I play cello and everything else in the program, which is a piece by Danny Howard, Argentum, and um, Rinsky Korsakov, Scheherazade. Mm. But then a couple of weeks before the residency was due to begin, Matthew Jones, one of the main people running National Youth Arts Wales, he said, asked me, we're going to try and do something a little different. And so of hiring somebody specifically to play the Celesta, we thought of asking a member of the orchestra to try and do it. Would you like to have a go? And I said, sure. And I ended up doing it. It was really fun. That sounds like a good day out. Yeah, that does actually. Shallow in the rest yeah, of Just it. end up behind the Celeste, just exactly. doing whatever, you know, yeah. having a brilliant time. What are your favourite pieces? Just doing pieces? what, sorry? Having a brilliant time. <laughs> oh, I saw you do this. Oh, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> moving on, moving on, moving yeah, on, moving yeah. on. Class, on. Classical musicians over here. Classical yeah. musicians over here. Um, um, I was, uh, yeah. I was going to, I wanted to ask a question. How do you think 
I mean, obviously, um, Corn Gold was Jewish, and mm -hmm. partly why he left for America was to escape the Angelus. Um, he did. There's a story that's when Corn Gold uh, was initially asked to score The Adventures of Robin Hood in around 1938, mm. a call came from Helena the wife of theatre director Max Reinhardt. His Korngold's wife answered, and she told her that it was all over, in that the Anschluss had basically happened by right. that point. And almost exactly after the call had finished, some people working for Warner Brothers, which is for whom Korngold scored his films, came to the door and said, Korngold, you have to score this film. Mm. And he eventually agreed to do so. And if he hadn't moved to America to basically write the film score for this film, he might have perished. Yeah. Well, because he, he travelled pretty liberally between America and Austria during the 30s. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously, had he been in Austri Austria at the time when the Nazis took control, he would not have been allowed to leave. Yeah. Uh, he very possibly would have been killed. Yeah, put in the context. Um, and, even, and even then beyond that, like his music just stopped being played. He got. I know, I know. He got pretty unlucky with one of his. Was it his last opera? The Catherine. The Catherine. Yeah. When it was originally written um, about, was it a French girl? No, no. It was a. It was a Swiss. It was. A, I think it was originally an Austrian girl falling in love with a French soldier. No, a German soldier. Mm -hmm. No, oh, French. <laughs> no. It was something you could search it up, but I think it's something like a, f uh, a French girl falling in love with a German soldier or something, and it had to be changed. Uh, being, uh, being away from like a German soldier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it basically just got really unlucky because it was quite a good piece. But it just yeah. didn't get performed because it got, um, it got, uh, well, what, censored by the, by the Nazi regime. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Um, it's crazy because I can't think of many composers, even in a sort of later 1900s when films are, you know, very apparent everywhere, that um, have balanced that, um, They've, they've struck that balance perfectly between writing concert music, film music, and even opera. So how how do you think he he was able to do that? Like um, enter those pathways in his mind, kind of, and and, and make it also appropriate for the task at hand. Um, to kind of write in all the genres that he did, in a way. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Could have said that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of how to answer. Um, I think. Uh, oh, I'm not sure. I, I mean, no, I would say from from a from a sort of just a listener's perspective, he he was very good at at function music, which was something that was becoming more and more prominent. Yeah, uh, and it's just like you could can you turn your hand to stuff. It's something that I think modern composers are fantastic at. Mm -hmm. um, I think you're fantastic at it. I've heard a lot of your a lot of your stuff, and it, it seems like it comes from a, a million different styles. Mm -hmm. And actually, at that time, if you listen to Schoenberg and Bergen stuff, they were trying to forge their own style. But um, Korngold, whilst having his own style, he was he was also very good at mimicking um, and writing in the style of other people. So I remember, I couldn't believe yes. when I was listening to his operettas and then I listened to his film music and then I listened to his symphonies. And you're just like, how is these all written by the same person? That's true. And um, also yeah. on that note, there's a set of four small piano pieces called um, Four Little Caricatures, which, which weren't actually published at the time because Cornwall's publishers shot also happened to be the publishers of some of the of at least one of the composers depicted in the caricatures. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Apparently composers like, I think it was Schoenberg, maybe Hindemith and Bartok, I don't know, some right. people like that. And um, But you can also tell that every single one of them is Cornwall, which is... Oh. It's a remarkable thing. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Well, he, he kind of tapped into the writing style of all of yeah, them. Yeah, almost just um, uh, like affectionately taking the mickey out of them in a way. Yeah, yeah, that's so funny. I like it. So um, why, why do you think that people don't 
know him as, as well as perhaps we could? Um, partly because, and this may be something people have said before, but maybe, I'm not quite sure, maybe the fact that, as you mentioned before, that once he came back from America after the Second World War, people thought he might have been kind of musically defiled by Hollywood. <laughs> but then it was from the early 70s onwards, some recordings, beginning with his film scores, were released. And they kind of gradually reintroduced Congol's music into the public consciousness, as it were. And from the, certainly from the late 80s onwards, his concert music began being played again. And in the 90s, I think awareness had almost exploded in a way. Because if you look in 19, the late 90s, two biographies appeared almost simultaneously by Jessica Dutchen, I think, and Brendan G. Carroll. And I've read those both of those multiple times. <laughs> and it's by that point, I think Kongol was beginning to be kind of re-accepted into... Um, and also by today, his music has been performed more often. I mean, you got a couple of years back in 2019, John Wilson and the Symphony of London's inaugural recording together was of three of Kongol's later orchestral pieces, including the Symphony in F-sharp, which is not only a stunning piece, but a stunning recording too. Mm. And it show i know yeah but these so these pieces are fantastic why is it then that i when i see cornwall on a program see only the violin concerto over and over again i mean it's obviously an amazing piece Mm -hmm. but how did it why does it make such a spark in a sense in people's minds and 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 not the cello concerto or the symphony Mm -hmm. in f F sharp minor did you did you say well it's it why don't they catch on i guess um, well, partly because quite a lot of his music is really difficult to perform, especially the symphony in F sharp. Um, you, then, some of the violin concerto, it's probably one of Korngold's more immediately approachable pieces in terms of language he writes in. Mm. But I'm quite sure the violin concerto is more often played. It's It's a wonderful vehicle for the soloist, and I don't know. With the, it shows a lot of virtuosity in it, doesn't it? Does it? I've seen some acrobatics going on. And, and it's the same with his operas. His operas yeah. are unbelievably difficult. Are they to sing. really hard? Oh, yeah, to sing. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, Detour to Stadt, which is. No. I could, <laughs> you, I could right bear, now. probably could do that right now. <laughs> right now. Oh, I can, I can, can do it. For <laughs> so those of you who don't right know, now. Tom has been violently ill recently, and, so, and, his, uh, and his voice, if you can't hear, is uh, taking a hit. I haven't transitioned to being a baritone just yet. Yeah. But he's getting there. This might be the start of the journey. Oh, mate, I thought your balls had finally dropped. Excellent. Here we go. <laughs> the weekly ribbing. This is what I got out of bed. Sorry, the for. weekly what? The ribbing. Ribbing? Oh, rib- ribbing. <laughs> oh, beep it, James. Beep it. James, uh, <laughs> don't you dare touch any of that audio file, man. Because that's um, going straight to me. Head off it now. No, the, uh, the, the part, part of it is that it's written in a very Wagnerian style. And Wagner yes. being like the most epic of any opera. So it's like all the voices that sing these roles are basically expected to be like held in like dramatic voices yeah yeah, yeah. um which and there aren't many of those and also there aren't many of those that sound nice you know held singers uh it's it's like the hardest voice type to sing it's like the, what does that mean like heroes sort of, yeah it's like yeah. very sort of like heroic roles and it's basically being able to sing over a full Wagnerian orchestra that's quite but, a lot of opera roles isn't it like big fat guy walks on just blasts a few tones out there i mean i i don't think it is. <laughs> it's it's pretty exclusive to German repertoire, and German this is repertoire. this is part of it is that because he wrote with a lot of the lyricism of Puccini mm-hmm. in in his music, um, and yet 
wrote in a very Germanic operatic style. Yeah. Like you're asking a singer to basically do two very different things at the same time. And it's okay. so difficult to do. Okay, I see. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, I think that's probably the main reason why his operas aren't... So they don't put them on just because they're a bit hard. I mean, but interestingly enough, you mentioned Die Tote Stadt a couple of months ago, back in March, I think it was, I went to see Eno's production of it and it was really good. Yeah, and, really? Um, it was a great production. I should yeah. have gone to see that. I must admit, I've never... I, gone to the I, opera. I've never gone to the opera, no. Uh, it was a really good one, Ed. Um, <laughs> no, I've, I've never gone... I, I'm pretty picky with what I go and see, actually. I'm, and, yeah. and, like, and I shouldn't be because I recently went to watch Jephthah at Covent Garden. Have you gone and seen it? Uh, as of recording this no i have as of recording this go and watch it it's unbelievable uh it's uh i mean it's the first time i've ever enjoyed a handle opera it's probably one of the first times i've ever enjoyed handle because of the Um, choreography and staging or just because of the music all of it i mean the way they sang it the the staging everything it's just phenomenal Mm. and it's like three hours long and i only nearly fell asleep like three times um you loved it you loved it i did i did that means that means it's good i mean usually usually ed's waking me up at the interval and and sort of coaxing me with ice cream back it back in for the second half yeah coming in Um, with like jelly beans and all the snacks um, but no, I, I should go and watch it. I, I have, I've listened uh, to <clears throat> Shut a lot and it's, it's awesome. It is a great yeah. opera, yes. Um, it's a great opera, but, but it's like more than that, it's like, it's a great story. And that's something that you don't always get with opera. That's true. So could you tell us then perhaps a little bit more about, um, this is such a vague question, but just so we've got a section on the podcast about Korngold's personal life, maybe, you know? Yes, um... His eyes lit up. We're onto something here. <laughs> yeah, there was um, as rather interesting. You mentioned um, the Korngold and the Second Viennese School earlier, because when he was a teenager, I think one of his girlfriends or a relative of one of his girlfriends later became Arnold Schoenberg's second wife. Wow. Um, but she uh, really had a thing for musicians, <laughs> didn't she? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, anyway, to be serious, um, Korngold met his wife, Louise von Sonnethal, also known as Lutzi, in, I think it was probably the late 1910s. And mm. they, they had a very loving relationship. They married in, I think, 1924, yeah. around then. And they stayed married until Korngold died, and she outlived him by about eight years. And... Yeah, despite parental opposition, especially from the side of Kongol's father, they enjoyed very happy life together. And this father dude sounds a bit miserable. This guy <laughs> sounds like so Just, pissed off. The whole like you've got time. to listen to this music and you can't marry this girl. <laughs> Imagine. Yeah, exactly. This father guy. This guy. <laughs> I know one knew. But was, what did he do? Like, he was the villain of this whole story. He was actually the villain. Yeah, but the fathers often are in these kind of cases, aren't they? Well, that, I mean, that's why they turn, I turn a bit crazy. Like, look at Mozart's dad. Got a good oh, few glorious. Beethoven's like nine to the worst. Beethoven's dad was the worst. Oh yeah, the worst because he, he was trying to make his son the next Mozart. Oh yeah, that was it. I mean, he basically forced Beethoven to practice the piano. You know, locked him in the yeah, room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bullied music into him. Exactly, exactly, I know. Yeah, just how how we all learned. I probably would have. No, done, no, I probably would have done better with a bit of bullying myself. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no. His his father uh, had a lot of influence over the younger years. I mean, of course he did. I mean, he was a musician, and his son was a music genius. And yes, it's one of those situations where you sort of think that you know what's best for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. Um, but then, yeah, there was an interesting thing that happened around the time that Kongol's opera Das Wunder der Heliana mm. was going to be premiered. And it was uh, it was seen as almost a rival to a very popular new work called Johnny Spielt Auf by Ernst Krenek. Yes. Which oh, yes. is um, quite stylistically different, mm. influenced by jazz and so on and so forth. And 
there was a campaign, like a two-way campaign in the press, those who argued for the the Kreniak and against the Korngold, and those who argued for the Korngold against the Kreniak. And Julius Korngold really got embroiled in this, and uh, it was, I don't know, it's just, he really didn't like Krennic's piece. And but again, some, because it was very modern in style. That's true. And thing. maybe I know some accused Krennic of being... No, not accused Krennic, accused Julius Korngold of being, I don't know, biased against Krennic because yeah. the other opera being campaigned for was by his own son. Mm. And what's interesting, another interesting coincidence, historical coincidence, is that the I think on the t- same day or the day after Heliana received its premiere was that, because this seems to mark, I don't know, not quite the beginning of the decline of Korngold's reputation in Vienna, I don't think it's quite that. But then the day after, or around the same exact same time, uh, the first and the jazz singer, the first movie was sound was received its was received its premiere, and so this is an interesting, almost ironic timing. The fact that that artwork received its premiere after Kongol's opera, and interestingly enough, it was in that other art form, writing for that other art form, that Kongol was probably too. I don't know. Is, uh, yeah. No. No. Yeah. Absolutely. No. What you mean? It's it's interesting. What that? Uh, so the other opera by Krenick. Krenick. Um, uh, that one being very different in style. Mm-hmm. Uh, his father, Kungol's father, actually being even being Jewish, hired out uh, part of a, a Nazi newspaper to write a review of how bad that was. That's how that's how embroiled into it he got. No, and they were a Jewish family, obviously. As a Jewish so family, because he something. felt so passionately about how bad this other opera was. And Bloody I think hell. that's partly why people saw him and thought this is the favouritism side of it. Yeah. Um, and that that kind of ruined his career. I mean, they so because I think Congo's family came out to America with him during the war. Yes. And then his father ended up dying in 1945 or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, literally, like as soon as the war finished, but I don't think his reputation ever really recovered from those accusations of bias and favouritism. Oh, unbelievable, yeah. But yes. Incredible, yeah, yeah. Super, okay, so on (laughs) a more light-hearted tone or something, how about you tell us three pieces that people won't know but that you love and uh, a little bit of a backstory on them, maybe, or just one piece, or just By Korngold, I presume. How many pieces you want. Okay. By Korngold, yeah. <laughs> no, <Sorry>. actually. Korngold. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. okay. uh, <laughs> I, I haven't actually listened to every single one of his pieces. I've listened to a great deal of them, so I'm going to list... Oh, no, get this girl off the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 He hasn't listened to every one of his <laughs> Okay, in all seriousness. Um, <laughs> one of my... I think one I'm thinking of right now is the string sextet which he kind of began composing during the First World War and which mm. received its premiere in 1917, just before he turned 20. And it's it's just so well written. And interesting that the way he writes his chamber music, he writes so richly for the instruments, you almost think he's thinking orchestrally, mm. but it also works so well. And the, the music of the string sextet is just so, I don't know, it's just open and sunny. And the th- the, th- the second movement seems to be a kind of taking forward the musical language of Schoenberg's Verkletternacht, right. even further into um, almost chromaticism, but it's entirely Korngold. The third movement is magical. So the intermezzo is wonderful. Mm. And it's, the whole thing is fantastic. Um, with the... Um, I'm trying to think of one of the operas. One of the operas I really love is... Um, Violanta. Yeah, second that's his op- second opera. Yeah. Second opera, yes. And this was described by 
his biography of Brendan Carroll is the work which Congo kind of makes his transition from child prodigy or wunder adolescent into a fully mature adult composer. Mm. And you can hear how... It's not to say that his early music was immature in any way, but this, the tone of the music suddenly changes and kind of intense, frequently kind of erotic music in this opera. Mm. And it is fantastically written. And I don't know if you've ever listened to it as part of the double bill with during... There's Polyclites. Yeah, exactly. No, I haven't. It's because it's weird. It is part of that double bill. It's strange. I haven't watched it live, of course, but I've listened to them Mm. back to back. And one is like a basically a very funny comedy written by much more obviously a teenager. Yes. And then you have Violanta, which is like night and day. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, I I would love to see those operas or or maybe conduct them one day. Who knows? Yeah. Um, (laughs) Who knows? The RCM might be doing it next year. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, Instead be, of doing one term's preparation, that would be like, ambitious. one whole year. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, would be, yeah, yeah. that would be ambitious, though, because it's very hard writing and you oh, yeah. probably need lots of instruments. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, yeah. Also, they also won't be doing it next year, but I, we, we will write letters until they do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Gwydion and I will be... Well, like a total <laughs> dissonance wax stamp on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can really, really, really like get that. Pitchforks, you know. Absolutely. You can really oh, campaign cool. it. Um, um, yeah. Then, yeah, it's third piece, third piece. Um mm. Trying to think of something from later in the career because I've picked two pieces which he wrote when he was a teenager. There's some film um, music. Film music. Yeah. Um, one of the scores. I've to confess I've only heard like excerpts from some of the film scores, but out of the ones I've heard, oh, it's hard. Um, <laughs> um, oh, it's really damn hard to choose. Anything the, from Robin Hood? Oh, the Robin Hood score is fantastic. I think Robin Hood is probably. I'll, I'll choose Robin Hood. Yeah. Not only because it's an amazing score that, in the act of writing, it probably saved Korngold's life, but one of the pieces from which Korngold took inspiration was a symphonic overture he'd written called Sorsum Corda, mm. which had been premiered in Vienna in 1920 and which has been provide, provided Korngold with quite a significant flop after many successes. Mm. And, but ironically, he used that music in the score to Robin Hood and the score to Robin Hood won him his second Oscar. Yeah, well, that says it all really, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, it's kind of, because people won't have watched that Robin Hood, because that was like 1939 yeah. or something. 38, I think. 38. Uh, but, uh, sorry, sorry. It's okay. <laughs> sorry, Ed. Um, <laughs> no, uh, people will have watched the, the later Robin Hood from the 90s, won't they, with Michael Kamen writing the music. Uh, yes. But uh, it's only when you listen to the music of Michael Kamen that you realise how, quite how much he paid homage to to. Corngold in his score. Yeah, it's yeah, very similar. Instead of yeah. paying homage to Corngold, I mean, you've got famous example from the title music the Corngold wrote for the 1942 film King's Row mm. was, I think, one of the tracks that George Lucas um, invited John Williams to take inspiration from the music of Star Wars. And if you listen to the beginning of King's Row, it's and then the beginning of Star Wars yeah. It speaks for itself. Pretty similar. Yeah, we also know that John Williams like, copied and pasted everything. <laughs> John Williams, he did. Well, he did it in Tintin as well. So Tintin, his yeah. he. Yeah. Bro, you kind of look like Tintin actually. Oh, that's just the most unnecessary thing I've ever heard in my life. I'm going to demand a written apology later. Off camera. <laughs> <laughs> Total business stamp. Mm. But no, he um, John Williams. Uh, you can you can definitely hear a lot of corn gold in his in his Tintin score from 2011 or whatever it was. Okay, I think it's mm. uh, I don't know. I don't know what even what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Keep going. Keep going. Absolutely. Oh, this is when the real gold comes out, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> what, about, what about corn? What about corn? 
Oh, here we go. No, don't clap it. Don't don't encourage it. Don't encourage him. He's getting braver. We need to put his he's lead growing, back he's on. He's growing in power. Yeah. <laughs> Something got up his Okay. Um, back in the box. <laughs> it's interesting being a, um, well, not me, but you being a composer. Mm-hmm. How much have you taken from Korngold in your own works? I mean, because every composer must have their, like, no, sorry, every yeah, current modern-day composer must look back into the past and have someone they go to as a staple. Mm-hmm. But you've chosen Corn and Gold in many ways to learn from. And what have you taken well, from his musical style? I'm not quite sure. I think certainly expanded, probably expanded my harmonic palette at the time. But then in terms of influence, I'm not really sure how Corn Gold affected it. Maybe it's more subliminal in a way. But then, I'm, I'm yeah, I can't really think of any one way that Korngold might have affected my music because it's not as a composer, speaking as a composer, not necessarily what you hear that's always the influence. In so many ways, it's also how it's made. Mm, yeah. How the music has been written, um, like tech, from a technical point of view. And I, I, I do very much love Korngold's music, but as an inspiration for kind of writing my own music, I can't really think of anything right now, with the possible exception, when I was about 15 or so, I began kind of writing a string sextet, which I never completed. And the kind of opening of the piece is kind of, I don't know, it's just, it draws on the sound world of Korngold in a way, the mm. Korngold sextet, right. but not in the least because it's in the same key. Intentionally? Um, Did you do that? It, probably, I yeah. don't know. Yeah. But it's um, D major. But then I never got around the first minute or so, beyond mm. the first minute or so of writing the piece. Um... Then yeah, we must I, find it. We must find it. Let's <laughs> find it. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Dust it off. Um, no, but the, but I guess to, to go back to that question about how he how he influenced you, what what would you say his defining characteristics are? Corn gold stuff. Well, first of all, I think there's an amazing generosity in his music. Not only in terms of the richness of his style, mm. but the way he writes for whatever he's writing for the voices or the instruments or whatever is very kind of very involved with the music and as I mentioned before the chamber music some of the, much of the chamber music feels like it's written very symphonically very orchestrally almost mm. and but that's part of what makes it so appealing to me I remember right. hearing of the Junior Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester a couple of years back there was uh, one group which had learnt the first movement of the piano quintet which is a really hard piece okay but which when performed it's it's just amazing. Then other feature of Korngold is that, I don't know, it... Oh, God. It's difficult to put into words. Yeah, it's it's difficult to put into words. I just... Initially, when I fell in love with this music, it was partly due to the fact that I thought, I can't believe a teenager or a preteen wrote this yeah. assured yeah. and this kind of yeah. music. But it's also how sophisticated it is. Exactly, kind of how he not only absorbed the kind of styles of other composers at the time, but also managed to forge his own identity as mm-hmm. a composer. And mm. Yeah. It's, it's, I, think, I think it's interesting. A lot of what was spoken about in Hollywood when he became popular out there was that, oh, the reason this guy's so good is because, and this is a very American thing, I think, but yeah. they, were always, they were like, oh, he's, he's so good at getting the emotion of the music across. Like, you know, he's, he's, this is why he's the best film compu- you know, composer ever, whatever. You know, that's what they were saying in America mm-hmm. when he started no off. way that it's good music. And, uh, yeah, exactly right. And it's like, Opera had been written for how many years before that? Yeah. And, the, and these like 
American film buffs were acting like Corngold is the first guy who was doing this. <laughs> you know, it's like the most American thing ever, isn't it? Yeah, really? Yeah, no, it's classic. To be like, we yeah. found this guy and he's like a genius because he makes music emotional. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is, it's so right. sad though, because like in America and from the beginning of the 1900s onwards, mm -hmm. I mean, Marla went out there and they had these they, they had a lot of interaction you know with European composers and conductors coming out to premiere their operas you know and, and show off their works how many composers did they actually have themselves to show off no one really so well not not so many I don't mm. think not, that, no, no, no. when I say not, early 1900s I do mean like no, I mean, you've got Amy Beach you've got I don't know Edward McDowell to an extent sorry I've played some Amy Beach yeah no, 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 sure, but not Strauss and not Mahler level kind of music or, or well, you know. I mean, Ooh. not as kind of, maybe not as internationally renowned as those composers, but I mean, doesn't necessarily mean their music isn't worth checking out. No, 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 absolutely. For sure, for sure. Yeah. No, it's, uh, I don't know, I always I always just sort of found found that interesting that people, that, that Hollywood was the kind of the death of Corngold. In many mm. ways, it was it was the blessing and the curse, and um, I, I think because he was he was paid the most extortionate salary by them. He oh, was really, basically yeah. I think it was on like equivalent of what's like five hundred grand a year. Yeah, film is it, ladies and gentlemen. And he, and he, yeah, and, and, and he only the, had to write like two scores a year. Yeah, he was also given the choice of what scores he could write. I think. Yeah, and which so, is uh, which the luxury that not like barely any of the other composers at that time had that choice, and he was able to keep the rights to his music. Wow. Which yeah, a lot good, of people like, want. It's amazing you wrote anything like, yeah. <laughs> like off the first salary. I'd be like, yeah, that's, that's crazy, you know. Yeah, um, and I think that's why there's a sort of always a hint of jealousy back in back in Europe. Um, yeah, but but you know, but he was kind of forced into that position. You know, he was he had to emigrate away from Austria. Yeah, uh, he didn't really have the choice. He didn't really have. It's not like he could have stayed and carried on writing music. He yeah. would have been censored. He would have been silenced, and he possibly would have been executed. Yeah, true. So how would you like compare his um, film writing style to other composers of that like, sort of similar era? Like Bernard Herrmann, he was around that time as well, right? Like, um, uh... I wanted to get more versatile in terms of my familiarity with these composers. I think Korngold's brought this extraordinary background in concert music, music for the stage and so on and so forth. And he drew on the richness of his experience with that, as I think I mentioned before, with... Mm of how he structured his operas with um, kind of interconnecting themes that kind of wove the music around the drama, complement to the drama. I think he brought that experience to film music. And I remember listening to an interview that John Wilson gave on the Presto Music podcast that Cornwall's music is almost aristocratic in the involvement it has with what's happening on screen, what we're mm. seeing. And... Yes. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. no. As you say, I can sort of think, see, I can picture what you're mm, saying. I think mm. Anyways, he also. What's interesting is that the influence from Vienna kind of seeped into some of his music because there's a film called from 1939, I think, called Juanes, oh, no. that he wrote. <laughs> set in, I think, it's set in Mexico, yeah. and he Congo was delighted to find that 19th century Mexico at the time where the film is set, was very enthusiastic about waltzes of Johann Strauss the Younger. Right, yeah. And so so included that influence in the score. And Do you think that was maybe uh, as a protest against the Nazis? I mean, because it became very typical at that time when, around 1939, where suddenly Austrian music was 
they were, everybody was trying to really champion it to show how different it was to German music. Well, I, I don't know, maybe so. Mm. Sorry, I've just completely it's okay. off. off yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, interesting. Okay. But it's, I mean, it's, it's very, I mean, I, I'm getting all my reference here from, from The Sound of Music. Perfect film. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but very much there, there was a huge sense of national mm. pride there during, really, yeah. around that period where everybody was saying, no, we're not German, we're Austrian. Yeah. Uh, mm. And it was when the Nazi flags were being flown everywhere and everybody was very proudly still flying their Austrian flags. Yeah, uh, I say yeah. everyone. I mean, this is like I'm talking about the von Trapp family here. You know, this yeah. is my, <laughs> my source knowledge for this for this subject. <laughs> Ed's Ed's quite used to this on this podcast of of people say things and then I reference some niche film that only I've watched. Yeah, exactly. Um, and he keeps like, talking about it. The guest and I like, you know, yeah, the guest, yeah, yeah, okay, like, okay, okay. Are you know, think, thinking that I've like read something historical here? And <laughs> yeah, I'm just yeah. like, you know, like last episode we were talking about Blackadder. Yeah. In this episode we're talking about the sound of music. Yeah, it's not no, niche. No, 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 no. Blackadder's not really niche. Neither is the sound of music. Oh yeah, have, have either of you or I seen the sound of music or Blackadder out of interest? The sound of music, yes. Blackadder, probably not. I really, I'm only familiar with um, I think like one meme from Blackadder. Which one? It's, um, I'm leaving for Nepal, where I tend to live as a goat. Something like oh, that. Oh yeah, classic. <laughs> so, so this basically the, the, a lot of the premise of his fourth season, Blackadder's fourth season, which is set in the trenches, um, was like him trying to get away from fighting, right? And oh, he yeah. kept coming up with like all of these stupid reasons as to why. So it's like the first, I think it was like the first episode, he, he set himself up as a cook and, oh, and yeah, cooked yeah. Ratto Van, which he then pointed out was Rat run over by a van. <laughs> you know, that's like, I mean, it's classic. And, and he found all of these like excuses not to. <laughs> the final scene is him basically going over the edge and just getting like, massacred basically yeah um i find that in my takeaway boxes there i wonder yeah 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 yeah. it's it's not a it's not a popular one on delivery um (laughs) but he like a lot of his and i think another one was where he pretended to have gone completely mad and stuck like pencils coming out of his ears and like underpants on his head and think i think he maybe said that quote Mm -hmm. um to basically try and like convince uh, convince the general. And I mean, there were all yeah. sorts. I mean, he did all sorts of things. Yeah, he, no, Blackadder was a genius, a genius series. I, I saw a few genius. episodes because it, it was it was often what the history teacher put on when he could not be bothered to teach. We had like a, a deputy teacher in there, and they'd say and, and they'd ask what we were doing. We say, oh, we actually just got to the last season. <laughs> Blackadder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we've got all to keep. What are you studying at the can't, moment? Can't stop now. Exactly. <laughs> we're doing uh, the first world war. We yeah. promise. I love that old TV getting rolled out. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, that really and those tools. Sort of you knew skills. it was going to be a good day at school when it was film day. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, how, how forty three minutes? I'm forty three. I think. I think. Let's let's call it there. I think there's a, a lot of food for thought in that. Yeah. Um, that's a nice. That's a nice length for an episode. And I think that there's a lot of sort of condensed knowledge that we've been able to include about Corn Gold. Um, Absolutely. So a, a huge thank you for William for coming on. And that's such a demand. Well. The part two is always on on the cards. You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, so can for- we let's let's finish the episode with. Gwydion's 30-second pitch of why, of why everybody should go and listen to Corn God today. Yeah, Dragon's Den style. <laughs> 30 seconds, off you go. His music is, as I mentioned, amazingly generous in terms of what he gives to the musicians and so on and so forth. And I just found his music amazing. And <laughs> without rambling, I can't really say much more. So yeah. just dun, go dun, and listen dun, to Corn dun, 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 dun. There we go. go and listen to Corn Gold and you won't regret it. Thank you. Absolutely. Excellent news. Okay. All right, then. Thank you very much for listening, everybody, today. And um, we'll look forward to seeing you next time.